The Naked Scientist. So every single Monday, we bring our attention and focus to some of the questions that you have about our weird and wonderful world. There is no such thing as a silly question. So if there's something on your mind that you would love to ask the naked scientist, Dr. Chris, this is your chance. Give me a call right now. 011-883-0702. Lines are open. You can also send through your questions via WhatsApp on 072-702-1702. Before we cross over to Dr. Chris, a big thank you to my previous guest, Ryder Muller, a midwife specialist, giving us all the information, the ins and outs of water births, so we're all able to make informed decision on the type of delivery that we would like. Dr. Chris, good afternoon. Welcome to the show. Good afternoon. Hi. A happy Monday to you. It's always a pleasure to be back with you. Uh, I love this feature. I've told all the listeners that even when I'm listening and I'm not here and when I stand in on the show, because I get to learn so much from you and we get to ask you the questions that some, perhaps some people would raise an eyebrow if we had to ask them around the bride to be like, how? And then where does this one come from? <laughs> We've got one question that's already uh, popped in, Dr. Chris. So let's jump straight into it. What is the best way to treat or alleviate the pain of the gallbladder well gallbladder is a small sac which sits under your liver and it's connected to the bile ducts your liver makes bile which is an oily material which is stored in the gallbladder temporarily and when you eat hormones from the gut and nerve nerve signals tell the gallbladder to contract and squeeze and this pushes the bile out down a tube into the intestine and there it mixes with the fats in the food you've eaten and breaks them up into small globules that can be easily absorbed into the bloodstream and then taken to the liver and then used in in the body. Now, because the bile is very, very fatty, it can form stones, the gall stones in the gutter and then most often cholesterol, but also get other things as well. And when you get stones forming, because the neck of the gallbladder is small, sometimes one of these stones may be bigger than the neck of the gallbladder and it can go into the neck and get stuck. And sometimes it's stuck in there permanently, but often what happens is it sticks for a while and then comes out. And so you tend to get the discomfort of that when you eat fatty food because the signals come and tell the gallbladder to contract it does so, but it pushes the stone into the neck and, and this blocks the hole up. And that's when it's uncomfortable. And so people get what's called biliary colic. And at the upper right part of the abdomen where your liver is, you tend to get the pain there. It can radiate to other parts of the body and sometimes through to the back. And it tends to, to come mostly with eating fatty food and, and is associated therefore with, with, with food. And so if you have that pattern, that's often a sign that there's inflammation in the gallbladder, especially if infection is set in. But if it becomes continuous, then it may be more serious and maybe warrant more investigation. We normally deal with it by, in the first instance, giving people analgesia and guidance about eating while we investigate the problem and then do something about it. And the best way to resolve it, if you have got lots of stones in your gallbladder and biliary colic, is that surgeons can go in and remove the gallbladder and this does not harm people, 
that it stops them having this pouch where the stones are or the stones can form. And this means they're not going to get the pain in the future or if they've had infection and, and you remove an, an infected gallbladder that you've settled down with antibiotics, but you've removed it so it can't do this in future, then you, you shouldn't have a repeat of that. The fascinating workings of the human body. It's the Naked Scientist with Dr. Chris, Chair of Science at the University of Cambridge. You know, you can ask any question that you would love an answer to, anything that you're curious about. My lines are open on 011-8830702. we got a WhatsApp that's come through from Sipo, Dr. Chris, and Sipo wants to know, why does one, you know, when you get an operation, for example, a knee or a hip replacement, why does one become uncomfortable when the weather changes, especially cold weather? Um, yeah, people have said that this. Is, is there an association between operative scars and temperature? There's not an obvious connection, but there's one possibility, which is that when you have surgery and you cut through the skin, you cut nerve fibers. And this will include populations of nerve fibers that signal pain and temperature. So I suppose it's possible that in some people, when you cut those nerves and in the immediate aftermath, as the nerves are trying to reconnect and heal, it's possible that there could be some aberrant driving. So temperature might then start to cause pain signals, for example, as the, as the nerves regenerate and reconnect correctly in the spinal cord. I'd say that the likelihood of that happening is quite is quite low, um, but it's one possible plausible explanation for why some people say that in an area of the body where they've had surgery, perhaps quite radical surgery, and there was a lot of nerve damage, perhaps that's why those areas do feel, in inverted commas, a bit different. The sensation is different there compared to the rest of your body and might become temperature sensitive. Sure. As I said, the human body. So fascinating. There's a reason for everything. Let's go to Peter out in Santon. Peter, we've got Dr. Chris on the line. What's your question? Yeah, talking about the human body, uh, Chris, is there any part of the human body that does not grow from birth? That is why you're born with it. The size is the same until, until you, you become an adult and you die. Did you get is that, Dr. Chris? I'll repeat it for you. Is there any part of the body that doesn't the grow from birth? Lime wasn't great. Could you just rephrase the question? Sure, Chris. For is me. there any part of the body that doesn't grow from birth, but it's fully um, developed? Your eyes don't get any bigger. <laughs> yeah, um, your eyes don't get any bigger. And when you are born, born with almost as many brain cells as you're ever going to have, and as we go through life, we lose brain cells, not adding them. But what we do change in the brain is the connectivity. So when you're first born, you have lots of brain cells and you make lots of connections in the aftermath and then you spend the rest of your life losing them. I don't think that our eyes get much bigger as we, as we grow. This is why babies appear to have very big eyes compared to their face. Uh, because the eyes relative to the size of the skull are larger when you're a baby because eyes are adult size pretty much once you're born and, and grow very little across the rest of your life. Almost like big clothes that your parents buy you and tell you, you'll grow into them, you'll grow into your eyes. Let's go to a voice yeah. note coming through from C.S. Madzuira. What would you like to know? Hi, Dr. Chris. I just wanted to ask... Um why do some countries have a longer lifespan compared to others? For an example, in China, uh, mm. life expectancy around about 80 to 85. 
when you look at other developed nations or developing nations, it's around 60 to 65. A brilliant question. And the answer is, it's not simple. Part of the answer, and probably the most important part of the answer, is quality of life, living conditions. This has the most contribution. What do people eat? What do they drink? What sort of accommodation do they live in? Do they have access to good quality surroundings, fresh food, clean water, sanitation? Because if we look at, for instance, records from London from years ago, infant mortality rate was very high. Living conditions in many places were terrible. Access to good quality food was abysmal. And people did not have access to clean water and sewage. And all of these things were placing a big insult on people's ability to stay free from disease and remain healthy. That is probably the best contributor to longevity, is how good are your living conditions? How good is your access to fresh food, good quality food, and good quality living conditions so that you're not living cheek by jowl with lots of other people and spreading diseases all the time? So that's one thing. Then there are other things like, are you catching diseases that might rob you of years of life? So in in the African continent, for example, the average age of a person is much, much lower than it was, say, 50 years ago because of the scourge of HIV, which came through the continent and infected lots of young people, robbing them from the population because their lives were lost. And this means that there's an artificially low age in, in the African continent at the moment, but in the advent now of treating HIV, people are not losing years, seeing the, the, the age go up to a disease that's endemic in society and in certain geographies. This is also a really important contributor. There are really specific factors. Historical reasons, populations moved very little historically. They were constrained by geography. That's why we all look different to each other in different parts of the world. And that meant there was a concentration of certain genes in some parts of the world. And some of those genes made contributions to helping people to live a long time or longer or be healthier in their environment, but not necessarily as long as they could live. And so there are some parts of the world where there are concentrations of genes which are not so beneficial in the modern era and don't contribute so much to longevity. And there are other parts of the world where people, by luck, and Japan is a really good example of this, have certain genetic contributions that may make them healthier. So when you bring all this together, you see the pattern that we see today of certain parts of the world seeing people living longer, certain parts of the world seeing people living shorter times. But on average, the average human, we we think, with the ideal conditions for all those things optimized, should live about 100 years. The measurement of the quality of life. Always something so important to consider. 13 minutes before 3 o'clock, we have got the Naked Scientist with Dr. Chris, the Chair of Science at the University of Cambridge, every Monday answering all your questions that you might have around our weird and wonderful world and how it works. Let's go to Craig out in Johannesburg. Craig, good afternoon. Dr. Chris is on the line to answer your question. Uh, Sure, Craig. Yeah, hi, Let's try again. There we go. Yeah, your line is much better. Go ahead. Perfect. Yeah, uh, I'd just like to ask the question about chill blames. So obviously it's been really cold, uh, especially in Benoni and Joburg. And my fiance recently formed chill blames on her fingers. 
I'd just like to know what it's caused from and how to prevent it. Thanks for the call, Craig. Dr. Chris, chill blains. Mm. What causes that? I've never heard of that. It's the first time I'm hearing of it the today. Posh, the posh medical phrase for chill blains is erythema perneo. And they tend to affect your distant peripheries. So toes are a common site for a chill blain. Fingers can also be affected. And in other words, it's places that can suffer from extremes of temperature, particularly the cold. They tend to happen when people are exposed to the cold. And they, they often happen when people get very cold for a long period of time and then warm up the body part very quickly. So, for instance, you get very cold hands and feet and then you go and get in a hot shower to warm up or something or come indoors and put your feet up in front of the fire. And, or, or you get up in the morning and you've got warm feet and you walk on a freezing cold floor and this then causes some kind of reactive change. And we don't know what is causing chillblains, but what happens in the aftermath, and you know you've got them, is because the affected body part becomes red, hot, tender, swollen, and awfully itchy. And it's, it's a horrible itching sensation because every time you rub it to make the itching better, it hurts. It gets worse. Oh. And it carries on doing that for about a week. And then it settles down and goes away until, of course, you make it happen again. It's some kind of neurovascular reactivity. It's probably related to another condition called Raynaud's, which is also an over-exuberant reaction in the blood vessels to changes in temperature. But we don't know why you get this neuroinflammatory vascular phenomenon, which we call a chillblain. It's certainly more common in some people and seems to run in families, but no one's got the gene for it. But we, we do know there must be some kind of familial thing, although families live in similar environments to each other, don't they? So it might just be that the environment is causing it to happen and that everyone's a bit susceptible. But certainly you do tend to see some people in some families who will say, we always get chillblains every winter, other people who, who don't. So we, we think there probably is some kind of familial aspect to it, but we don't actually understand the mechanism of why people get this. I told you I love this feature because you learn so much. I have never heard what chill blains are. I googled it and I was like, oh, I've never seen or heard of this before. If you'd like to do the same, it's spelled B-L-A-I-N-S, chill blains. Then you can get a picture of exactly what they look like. Naked Scientist, the Naked Scientist with Dr. Chris answering all your questions. We've got this one coming through from Ian. Hi. Can you ask Dr. Chris? No, I'm still confused. How does hydraulic work? I know inside that cylinder there's hydraulic oil. But I mean for, you know, something that's five, six, seven meters that can lift a ton or more than a ton, the pressure must be heavy inside that thing in that cylinder. Uh, maybe the doctor can just explain to me. Uh, thanks. How does hydraulic work? No problem. What you have with a hydraulic device is a pump. And this pump is fed from a reservoir of oil. You could use water, but that makes it go rusty. We use oil because it doesn't. You then push the oil through the pump. The pump will pressurize the oil normally to more than a thousand pounds per square inch or thereabouts, pushing the oil down a pipe and into a hydraulic ram cylinder or a hydraulic drive like a motor. So if you want to make a digger, 
go along, for example, you actually have a motor, which is a bit like a windmill, and you blow the windmill around with the, with the path of the oil. But let's think about a digger list, lifting something up with its bucket. You have those big hydraulic rams with the shiny stems coming out of them that everyone's seen. You push the oil in, into there, and it behaves just like a syringe, the kind of syringe you go and get an injection from at the doctor, where there's a barrel and then a plunger. Only in this syringe, instead of pulling something out, you push oil in and the oil goes in underneath the plunger at high pressure and pushes against the plunger and makes it move up inside the barrel. And when it gets to the end of the barrel, that's as far as the hydraulic can go and the pressure can't rise any further and then goes through a relief valve and bypasses. When you want to reverse the direction of the hydraulic, you just release the pressure from one end, push oil in at the other end on the other of the barrel inside the syringe and it pushes it back the other way it's all about pressure because pressure is equal to force over area and so if you have a a high you push oil in a very high pressure you get a huge force on the plunger because it's a small surface area with a lot of force against it which means the pressure is very very high and this means you you will develop a lot of force out of your hydraulic Apologies there for our connectivity issues, but I hope you managed to get the gist of it. You know, it's all about the pressure and which way and in which direction it's applied. And I love Dr. Chris's explanation and just simple analogy of it's like a syringe. Where is the pressure? Where is the oil being pushed? And that is what creates the fascinating works of hydraulics. Hope you got that answer there, Ian. I think we've got time to squeeze in one more from T- Thomas in Tembisa. Hi, Thomas. Hi, Alban. Yes, uh my question is uh, with regards to uh, perishable products, uh, the cooked food, like, uh, for example, tea, fish, or beef. Uh-huh. Like, uh, yeah, actually, I'm just want to understand the, I mean, the expiry date of those things. How do they know that a certain food, a certain uh, prepared food will expire in a certain day, specifically? How do they measure or know exactly that date? Thanks for that question, Thomas. You got that, Dr. Chris. How do they measure the perishability of certain products? How do they know that this baked bean tin can only last for the next six months and will expire on this certain day? This will be our last one for today. Well, the answer is because people have done the experiment. We actually know how long coatings will last for without any degradation. We know how long certain foodstuffs last for with certain levels of degradation that we're willing to tolerate. And so when we put best before date things or use by dates on things, this is the date where people have actually done the experiment. They've made measurements. They know that the standard and quality of the foodstuff will be good up to that point. And when it comes to long lived things, it's because someone's actually got measurements of the materials. They know what the rates of degradation of those materials are, if anything, and therefore they know how long you can rely on them to protect your food or the food or the contents to remain in good condition. Some of it, though, is just because of ticking a legal box. For instance, I had a bottle of water the other day and I noticed it had a best before date on it. Now, the planet is 4,500 million years old and a lot of Earth's water was here when the Earth formed. So therefore, there's a lot of water on Earth, which is 4,500 million years old. So are we going to go around now drink that water because it might be over its best before date. It's absolute rubbish. But for things like food, it's helpful because it stops unscrupulous retailers flogging you stuff that might be off. Oh, and that is where we will leave it. Thank you so much, Dr. Chris. Always so exciting and so insightful to hear from you. We get to do The Naked Scientist with Dr. Chris again next week, Monday. Enjoy the rest of your day, Doc.
I think he's gone.